Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Internet Radio. Today is Friday, October 23rd, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening I am going to present part 12 of our commentary on the wisdom of Solomon. This is titled, The Origin of Wisdom. In our last presentation on the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of kings, which was discussed, which discussed the first 21 verses of Wisdom chapter 6, we showed how Solomon was actually making an exhortation, although it was expressed as a prescient admonition that the kings of Israel ruled the people righteously by following the counsel and keeping the commandments of God. To Solomon, this was wisdom, and he admonished them that they would suffer trials if they did not heed his warning. Then he advised them, according to the commandments of God, to keep holiness holily in a holy manner, that doing so they themselves would be judged holy. Since he was speaking to kings whom he had expected to keep the law, which, as he was writing, can only include the kings of the future children of Israel. Then the holiness to which he refers is the separation and distinguishing of Israel that is demanded in the law. Solomon then advised these kings that if they sought wisdom earnestly, they would find it, that it would not be far from them. Since Solomon was speaking of the wisdom which is from God, his words evoke Paul's address to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, where Paul told them that God himself had given all nations of man, which is properly Adamic man, the opportunity to seek him. And if surely then they would seek after him, then they would find him. And indeed, he being not far from each one of us. Then again, we read in Hebrews chapter 11, but without faith, it is impossible to please him for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that seek, that seek him diligently. In like manner, Solomon said in verse 13 of this chapter, as we would translate it, that wisdom comes upon those who desire to know her beforehand. Finally, Solomon made a profession, which we had also seen expressed in diverse places in the Gospel of Christ, as well as in the epistles of the apostles, namely in those of John, James, and Paul, where he wrote, where Solomon wrote, for the very true beginning of her, referring to wisdom, is the desire of discipline, and the care of discipline is love. And love is the keeping of her laws. And the giving heed unto her laws is the assurance of incorruption. And incorruption makes us near to God. Therefore, the desire of wisdom bringeth or leads to a kingdom. So we see in Solomon that love is keeping of the laws of God which is true wisdom, and that the keeping of the laws results in incorruption. Many years later, the Apostle John defined love in that same manner, according to what he had in turn heard from Christ. In 1 John chapter 5, he wrote, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. For the Christian, no other sort of love should eclipse or could eclipse this or supplant this true love of God, which is to keep his commandments. This is so important to the Christian faith that John repeated it in his second epistle where he wrote, I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. 
And this is love that we walk after his commandments. Those commandments also demand that the holiness and sanctity of the people of Israel be maintained as Solomon had already advised the kings. And this Christ had only come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This being true wisdom, the desire of such wisdom, and the practice of such wisdom results in the establishment of a kingdom. And that in turn would indeed be the kingdom of heaven. But while Solomon's father David certainly was a model of such a king, it was never accomplished in the period of the Old Testament kingdom, nor was it ever explicitly preached. However, it is the core message of the gospel of the kingdom preached by Christ and his apostles, which also underscores the Old Testament scriptures that provide its foundations. Therefore, because this message in all of the books of the Old Testament period, because this message only exists here in the, in the wisdom of Solomon, we must consider Solomon to be a prophet of the gospel of the kingdom, which was preached by Christ, because its core elements are all elucidated here in Wisdom chapter 6. And while portions of it are found in diverse places among the Old Testament scriptures, portions or allusions, nowhere else is it explained in a single passage and in such a clear and concise manner. Solomon must have had the 119th Psalm as a model, which was probably, because it's not certain, which was probably written by David, his father. And its expressions do indeed appear in other Psalms, which are explicitly attributed to David. Where in part, addressing Yahweh God, it says from verse 97, Oh, how I love the law. It is my meditation all the day. Though through thy commandments hast made me wiser than, or thou, I'm sorry, thou, through thy commandments hast made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. And I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep thy word. Solomon certainly could not have written that. I have not departed from thy judgments, nor hast, for, I'm sorry, for thou hast taught me. How sweet are thy words unto my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. While David did not speak explicitly of a development of a kingdom through the king's love for the law, in his own life, Solomon must have witnessed that result and had that observation as a foundation for his love of wisdom. Now he is advising others who would be kings and... As he proceeds, he begins to illustrate the beauty of wisdom which and, and the origin of wisdom, which comes first. And he continues to describe wisdom as the allures of a woman. Here at the end of Wisdom chapter 6, he first promises to reveal the origin of wisdom and how he can explain it what his basis is for being able to explain it. So we will commence with Wisdom chapter 6, verse 22. As for wisdom, what she is, and how she came up, I will tell you, and will not hide mysteries from you, but will seek her out from the beginning of her nativity and bring the knowledge of her into light. 
and will not pass over the truth. Here Solomon promises to inform us as to how wisdom came up or how it came to be. But as he proceeds, he shows why men should seek wisdom by illustrating the fact that all men come into the world humble and naked, crying and needing to be nursed by a woman. Making that argument, he implies that no king is born with wisdom and no king is born in a condition which is different from any other men. So that is a further admonishment that even kings should be humble and willing to learn wisdom. When we get to chapter 7, he shall profess that wisdom came to be through God. So Solomon leaves no room in wisdom for any wisdom which is not from God. First, however, he advises on how to approach wisdom. And he says, neither will I go with consuming, or literally melting, envy. Consuming envy. For such a man shall have no fellowship with wisdom. Liddell and Scott define the word phthanus, which is envy, as ill will or malice, especially envy or jealousy of the good fortune of others. So we must be careful not to be jealous of the good gifts, the fine attributes, the intellectual prowess or the material possessions or other things which Yahweh God has given to others. The Apostle Peter had also warned against envy in a similar manner, that along with other sins, it prevents one from coming to truth. Here Solomon says it prevents one from having wisdom. <laughs> the, two, the two were basically the same thing. They're basically stating the same thing in different terms. In chapter 2 of his first epistle, Peter had said in the opening verses, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and all hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Likewise, Paul had warned Titus, where he wrote in chapter 3 of the epistle which he wrote to him, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, obedient, I'm sorry, foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Envy is always going to lead to hatred of your brother. Hatred of your brother or sister is always going to lead to slander of that individual because you were envious of them. You feel you have to tear them down somehow so that you can have what is theirs or you think you can. And in the end, you're going to end up even worse than you started off. In chapter 4 of his epistle, James also said that lust leads to envy, where he wrote, speaking of the fleshly spirit, that the spirit that dwelleth in us lusts to envy. Is It is evident in the words of Peter and Paul cited here that envy then in turn leads one to slander, and to blaspheme those whom we envy. So by following that path, we will never be led to wisdom. Now Solomon makes a statement which is further admonishing kings not to be envious of those who may have greater wisdom. He says, but the multitude of the wise is the welfare of the world, and a wise king is the upholding of the people. Now that word for wise is a Genitive, plural, masculine, adjective form of sophos, which in this context must be treated as a substantive, although it describes the character of the plethos or multitude. Perhaps it may have been translated as a multitude of wise men is the welfare of the world. But the word translated as welfare 
soteria is actually salvation or preservation. So rather than being envious of wise men among the people, a wise king should appreciate them. And finally, Solomon warns in verse 25, the final chapter of chapter 6, the final verse of chapter 6, receive therefore instruction through my words and it shall do you good. And we would translate this 25th verse to read, for this reason be instructed in my words and you shall profit, which is perfectly literal. Frequently, the great kings of Mesopotamia, as well as the Egyptian pharaohs, had obliterated the memories of their predecessors and often treated their own failures in like manner, not preserving records of their failures, but preserving records of their successful accomplishments while building monuments to their own greatness. Many of the records of the emperors of Rome were also erased from history. But here Solomon, a great king, advises future kings to heed his instruction, and therefore he anticipates that his own words would be preserved. So now we shall commence with Wisdom chapter 7. And Solomon begins by describing his own human frailty while asserting that no other and no future king can claim to have had any loftier or more advantageous entry into the world. I should say any more of an advantageous entry into the world. Wisdom chapter 7 verse 1. Solomon continues the appeal that he had initiated in the closing verses of chapter 6. I myself also am a mortal man, like to all, and the offspring of him that was first made of the earth, and in my mother's womb was fashioned to be flesh in the time of ten months, being compacted in blood of the seed of man and the pleasure that came with sleep speaking of the sexual act where it all had started. Where it says, the offspring of him that was first made of earth. The clause comes from a three-word phrase in Greek, Gaginus apogonus protoplastu. And that literally means descended from the first formed, protoplastus, earthborn, Gagenis, born of the earth. The early Greek writers had used the word Gagenes to describe the titans as being born of the earth. It is literally earthborn or earth race. It also appears in the Greek scriptures in Jeremiah, in the 48th Psalm, and twice in Proverbs. But while none of the translations in those other places of, of this word are consistent, here it is clearly an allusion to Genesis chapter 2 and the manner in which the creation of Adam is described therein. To Solomon, the children of Israel were the whole world, as he explained in Wisdom chapter 18. And they, in turn, having descended from Adam, he evidently considered Adam to be the first made of the earth, regardless of the presence of other so-called people or races. The phrase for mortal man here is thanatos anthropos, which is more literally a man subject to death. In the Greek text of verse 2, there are no Greek words for the phrases in my mother's womb and to be flesh, regardless of whether the implications are present. So we would more literally translate this phrase to read, in 10 months time, or I should say this verse to read, in 10 months time, being fashioned in blood from the seed of man and pleasure which comes in sleep. 
Apparently, or at least so far as I could find, there are only two references to the gestation period of children in Scripture, and both are apocryphal. First, there is this one, and the other is in 2 Maccabees chapter 7, where we see a mother's plea for mercy made to her son. O my son, have pity upon me, that bear thee nine months in my womb. Here in wisdom, gestation is described as a period of ten months. According to modern sources, the human gestation period, the time in which a person develops in a womb, the time of pregnancy, can range from 268 to 280 days. And some, according to a study originally published in Oxford Journals, can last as long as 284 days. That is nearly nine and a half months. We can only conjecture as to why Solomon described the gestation period as being 10 months long here. But Solomon was not alone. While we do not believe that the author of Wisdom was a student of Hellenistic philosophy, in Book 7 of Aristotle's History of Animals, we read, Now all other animals bring the time of pregnancy to an end in a uniform way. In other words, one single term of pregnancy is defined for each of them. But in the case of mankind alone, of all animals, the times are diverse. For pregnancy may be of seven months duration, or of eight months, or of nine, and still more commonly of ten months, while some women go even into the eleventh month. The ancient Greeks did not have a seven-day week, so a month to them was not 28 days. It was not four weeks. They didn't have a seven-day week. So Aristotle must have been referring to lunar months, and he implies that a 10-month gestation was even more common than the shorter periods. But it is plausible that Solomon was also referring to lunar months as the ancient Hebrews recognized lunar months as well, and they celebrated the new moon. The lunar month being 29 and a half days, while our calendar months are longer, simple rounding may account for the difference between Solomon and Aristotle and three Maccabees, whether it's nine months or ten months, whether it's 265 and a half, or 295 days, 10, 29 and a half day months. Continuing to speak of the humble state of man at birth. And when I was born, I drew in the common air and fell upon the earth, which is of like nature. And the first voice which I uttered was crying, as all others do. I was nursed in swaddling clothes and that with cares. In other words, he breathed the same air that all men breathe, and he crawled on the same ground upon which all men as infants first crawl. And he was nursed and cared for by a woman, which happens to all men from the time that they are first born. Solomon is describing the humble state in which all men are born so that he may make a greater point and he says in verse 5, For there is no king that had any other beginning of birth. For all men have one entrance into life and the like going out. In other words, we are all born the same way and we are all going to die and bring nothing with us. Therefore, no king begins life any better or any wiser than any other man. Making this illustration, it is evident that Solomon hopes to convince future kings that they should listen to his words and be humble enough to learn from them. Now he explains why they should do that in another manner, which is because his wisdom came from God. Wherefore I prayed, 
and understanding was given me. I called upon God, and the spirit of wisdom came to me. But here, there is no words for the phrase, upon God, in the text. So the translation is dishonest. Solomon does not reveal that wisdom comes from God until verse 14 and the verses which follow. I preferred her before scepters and thrones, and esteemed riches nothing in comparison of her. Even though the words upon God are not actually found in verse 7, this nevertheless describes Solomon's own experience as it is related in 1 Kings chapter 3. First, as he describes men in childhood here, in 1 Kings, in 1 Kings, as Solomon ascends to be king, he is portrayed as having prayed, and now, O Yahweh my God, thou hast made thy servant David king, in, thy servant king instead of David my father. I'm sorry I'm having technical issues with my reading this evening. Thou hast made thy servant king, meaning Solomon himself, instead of David my father, Solomon professing that he seeks to be a servant of God. But I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. He knows not how to operate his public affairs. Then on that account, while he may have asked for many other things, Instead, he asked only for wisdom and prayed that God give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this, thy so great a people? Now he once again professes to esteem wisdom to be much more valuable than riches. Chapter 7, verse 9. Neither compared I unto her any precious stone, because all gold in respect of her, or literally in the face of her, all gold before her, is as a little sand, and silver shall be counted or reckoned as clay before her. And here we have found it necessary to repeat some of the things we had already said in our last presentation because Solomon himself has repeated these things, although in a different way. There is nothing inherently wrong with wealth, if it is used wisely, like any other tool or, or material substance. The Apostle James, in chapter 5 of his epistle, had chastised the wealthy, who were not good stewards of their wealth, who used it for their own advantage while despising the poor of their own people. Therefore, returning to 1 Kings chapter 3, Yahweh God had rewarded Solomon with wisdom and with wealth because Solomon had sought wisdom above wealth or above any other fleshly or material rewards. And God said to him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and has not asked for thyself long life, neither has asked riches for thyself, nor has asked the life of thine enemies, but has asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before me, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments, as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. In Proverbs chapter 29, the love of wisdom is contrasted with whoredom. When a man loves wisdom, his father rejoices. Or perhaps that may be translated, he makes his father glad. But he that keeps harlots 
will waste well. In the Old Testament, when the children of Israel abandoned Yahweh their God and followed other gods, it was also described as whoredom. Even if their whoredom was not always literal in the sense that the word is commonly used. Sometimes it was. So notice that last promise, that if Solomon would keep the law, his days would be lengthened. Therefore, we read in Proverbs chapter 19, he that gets wisdom loves his own soul. He that keeps understanding shall find good. Continuing to describe his esteem for wisdom. I loved her above health and beauty and chose to have her instead of light. For the light that comes from her never goes out. Now, the first occurrence of that word light is from the Greek word phos, and the second from phagos, or phengus, as it may be pronunciated. Phengus may have been rendered as splendor or radiance. Solomon reveals his meaning here in verse 29 of this chapter, where he speaks of wisdom and says that, for she is more beautiful than the sun and above all the order of stars. Being compared with the light, she is found before it. In Proverbs chapter 6, Solomon wrote, For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light, and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. These concepts shall indeed converge later in this chapter. In the ancient Greek and epic and tragic poets. The same word, phos, which means light, was used as a synonym for man. True wisdom coming from God, and Yahshua Christ being the word of God made flesh, he is also the light come into the world, which never goes out. As we read in his own words in John chapter 8, then spoke Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Throughout the later half of this chapter, we shall see that Solomon considered only the wisdom which comes from God, which is Christ embodied. So now he expresses the result of his love for wisdom. All good things together came to me with her and innumerable riches in her hands. And I rejoiced in them all, because wisdom goes before them, or literally, of them wisdom precedes. And I knew not that she was the mother of them. Here Solomon seems to be saying that when he found these innumerable riches, it was not immediately evident that he had attained them strictly because of his love for and his having acquired wisdom. Of course, he must have made the realization by the time when he finally wrote this, because otherwise he could not have made this profession. But this profession, along with the profession found in verses 17 and 18 in chapter 6, where he said, for the very true beginning of her, meaning wisdom, is the desire of discipline. And the care of discipline is love, and love is the keeping of her laws. This seems to indicate that this work was indeed written after the repentance which Solomon had expressed in Ecclesiastes. So it may be conjectured that after having experienced the folly of his sin, he came to realize that all which he had possessed had only come to him on account of the pursuit of wisdom which he had undertaken in his youth. Continuing with verse 13. I learned diligently and do communicate her liberally. I do not hide her riches. And this verse would better be translated. Both honestly have I learned and abundantly have I imparted. Her riches I do not conceal. Of course, every true Christian should have this same attitude towards the wisdom of God, to learn from his word, and to be willing to share with one's brethren 
everything which one has learned. For she is a treasure unto men that never fails, which they that use become the friends of God, being commended for the gifts that come from learning. These are the gifts which the Apostle James had in mind where he wrote in the opening chapter of his first epistle that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. In chapter 6, Solomon had said that love is keeping of her laws, and the giving heed unto her laws is the assurance of incorruption, and incorruption makes us near to God. We would translate the second clause of this verse more accurately to read, which they, acquiring, meaning the treasure of wisdom, which they acquiring are prepared for friendship with God. But in any case, here we must understand that all of these things are prerequisites to any hope of ever being a friend of God. That where Solomon has written this in chapter 7, we must also take into consideration what was written in chapter 6. As for the gifts that come from learning, it is evident in 1 Kings chapter 3 that Solomon was granted gifts from God because he sought and prayed for wisdom. Then here he professed that wisdom is the mother of innumerable riches. So here in this verse, he does not necessarily refer to material gifts. Yet we saw that material gifts come not through craft, but from God. We may think it's our own craft that gains us material wealth, but that's not true at all. It's Yahweh God who gives us the ability to gain material wealth. It's a blessing, as we read in some of the minor prophets, especially Amos, and in Ecclesiastes. It's spelled out explicitly. It's a blessing if a man is able to maintain the things that he earned with labor from his own hands. So if you have the ability to amass wealth, that's a blessing from God. But sometimes... Sometimes material gifts may come as a reward, as we see in 1 Kings chapter 3 of Solomon, but even that is to fulfill the purpose of Yahweh, to build his kingdom and keep his promises, which is evident in the law in Deuteronomy chapter 8. But at other times, wealth is a trial, which is evident in the account of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, when they held back some of it, and they were punished for that because they lied. Or in James's admonishment of the wealthy in chapter 5 of his epistle, or in the rich man of the parable of Luke chapter 12, who sought to build larger storehouses for his abundant goods rather than seek out better ways to use his wealth. It may also be evident here that a friend of God is commended for the gifts which come from learning. But that does not pertain to the acquisition of wealth, although it may pertain to its utilization. Now Solomon admits that he himself is only acting as a vessel which Yahweh God has employed in order to explain his wisdom. Not Solomon's wisdom. Solomon possesses the wisdom of God. God has granted me to speak as I would and to conceive as is meet for the things that are given me because it is he that leads unto wisdom and directs the wise. Now, that verb for grant here is didomi and it appears in the optative form of the noun, of the verb, I'm sorry, which, which expresses a wish or desire the optative mood, I should say. Verbs in Greek have moods, and the moods decide whether the use of the word is, say, imperative. You must do something. 
or future, you shall do something, or as in the optative mood, it expresses a wish. I wish I could do something. So along with other differences, we would therefore translate this verse to read, and may God give to me, may God give to me, because Solomon is making a wish, may God give to me to speak intelligently and to consider worthily of the things which are given, because he is also the guide of wisdom. It's a noun, not a verb. And a corrector of the wise. It's a noun, not a verb. Here the grammar insists that Solomon is actually making a prayer, that the things which he writes in this book are accurate and are related intelligently which is itself a sign of his humility, that even if he is as wise as he claims, he hopes he is able to communicate that wisdom correctly and so that, that, so that in a manner so that it may be understood by men. <coughs> Excuse me. Just like Paul said in his epistles to the Corinthians, I don't remember exactly where, it's probably in, um, I don't know, it's in there somewhere. He, he said that he would rather speak five words in the assembly with his mind intelligently so he could be understood than a multitude of words in a tongue. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the meaning of what Paul said. So even no matter how intelligent and wise we are, we, we have to pray that we can communicate in a manner that our brethren understand us. If we don't communicate in, that, in, in such a manner, then our words are just being wasted in, in, the, in the air. That They're just being spoken for nothing. So Solomon is praying for that ability here. If it is God that leads one to wisdom, then the only true wisdom must come from God. It is not because it is Yahweh, as Solomon says here, it is God who is the guide of wisdom and the corrector of the wise. It is not Yahweh God who is going to lead men to Plato or to Aristotle, to the wisdom of this world, which Paul of Tarsus had denounced, as he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, the godless philosophers and the philosophers of the pagans fit the description of Paul, which he wrote in chapter 3 of his second epistle to Timothy, that such men were ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Humble men who seek God must also realize, as Solomon now explains, for in his hand are both we and our words, all wisdom also, and knowledge of, of workmanship. And that word for knowledge is actually episteme, it's skill in workmanship. From the 104th Psalm attributed to David, O Yahweh, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom thou hast made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. And then in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, so Solomon had also made a similar acknowledgement, and he wrote, For all this I considered in my heart, even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. So as we read in John chapter 10, in the words of Christ, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So Paul of Tarsus was able to go even further than Solomon and profess in chapter 2 of his epistle to the Ephesians. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, 
which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Now Solomon once again admits that the things which he himself had learned were also from Yahweh God. And therefore, God is indeed the source of wisdom, which Solomon said that he would reveal at the end of chapter 6. For he has given me certain knowledge of the things that are, namely, to know how the world was made, and the operation of the elements, the beginning, ending, and midst of the times, the alterations of the turning of the sun, the change of seasons, the circuits of years, and the positions of stars. <clears throat> that word for circuits is literally circles, the circles of years. So somehow, whether you want to believe that the earth goes around the sun or the sun goes around the earth, I, I don't care. Somehow, the years go in circles and the positions or settings of stars. The words of the sun are implied, where it speaks of the alterations of the turning of the sun. And this is a really difficult phrase. It's only the alterations of the turnings, but the grammar leads me, if I were to retranslate the entire verse, verse 18, the grammar leads me to connect that because there is no break and, and the, the case and verb form, I'm sorry, the case and adjective forms are matching with the midst of the times. So I think that the phrase the midst of the time should be intrinsically connected to the phrase the alterations of the turnings. I just haven't sorted it all out yet in time for this podcast. While we have other differences with this passage, the general sense is sufficiently accurate to refrain from them, except for those added words of the sun. That's just an, an implication drawn by the translators or an inference drawn from the, by the translators. I'm sorry. The words of the sun are inferred, I should write. I always confuse those two words. From the 136th Psalm, which opens with an exhortation to give thanks to Yahweh, to him that by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endures forever. To him that stretched out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endures forever. To him that made great lights, for his mercy endures forever. The sun to rule by day, for his mercy endures forever. The moon and stars by night, for his mercy endures forever. While we do not know by what Solomon, by what method Solomon came to understand these things, we cannot preclude the possibility that he received them through sacred writings more ancient than his own. I wouldn't conjecture it, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't preclude it. If there is any validity to literature such as that which is found in the Enoch literature, it must have existed in Solomon's time. Although we cannot know with certainty the substance or contents or trust that it is accurately represented by what we see of it today. In any event, Solomon continues to describe the many elements of wisdom which he had from God. And it far exceeds what we have in our copies of scripture as it exists today where he adds the natures of living creatures and the furies of wild beasts, the violence of winds and the reasonings of men, the diversities of plants and the virtues of roots or literally the powers of roots and all such things as are either secret or manifest, them I know. And speaking of roots, he means the roots 
of plants and trees, which, at least many of which, certainly have medicinal purposes, and a lot of that information is lost to us today, or it's buried in folklore, either extant or forgotten. I recall reading in Procopius, in the Secret Histories, which is from the 6th century AD, that the Greeks had a, um, a plant, a root, which was known to cause abortion, and that women were using it at that time. So I'm, I certainly don't advocate abortion, but that's just one example that would put a whole lot of Jewish doctors out of business if we rediscovered that and we could feed it to all the niggers. Okay, I'm fantasizing. I apologize for the digression. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, Solomon had made the profession that when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done upon the earth, for also there is that neither day nor night seeth sleep with his eyes, then I beheld all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun, because though a man labors to seek it out, yet he shall not find it. Yea, further, though a wise man think to know it, yet he shall not be able to find it. However, if this book of wisdom was written after the repentance, which Solomon demonstrates in Ecclesiastes, then there is no real conflict between these between these passages. But the passages really do not conflict anyway. Once one realizes that in Ecclesiastes, Solomon is actually professing that a man cannot discover these things on his own, while here he is professing that knowledge of these things can be received from God. So there may seem to be, and I missed a sentence, I apologize, there may seem to be a conflict between Wisdom chapter 7 verses 20 and 21 and Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verses 16 and 17, but once this is thought out, there really is not a conflict. It's speaking from different perspectives. Now, once again, Solomon turns to credit wisdom, continuing to employ an athromorphism, giving wisdom human attributes, the attributes of a woman. For wisdom, which is the worker of all things, taught me, for in her is an understanding spirit holy, and, and we will retranslate that in a moment, one only, manifold, subtle, lively, clear, undefiled, plain, not subject to hurt, loving the thing that is good quick, which cannot be leaded, ready to do good. I'm not going to offer a translation of this passage. I decided not to. I am going to discuss each of the terms or most of the terms. The word for understanding here is noeris. It's from noose or mind. And this word noeris is not extant in writings before Plato. That doesn't mean that the word did not exist. It just isn't found in, in the tragic poets or the epic poets. It may better be rendered as intellectual than understanding. The phrase understanding spirit holy would have better been rendered as intellectual holy spirit. Perhaps the translators, who never properly understood the holy spirit, could not understand how Solomon used it to describe an aspect of wisdom. In Psalm 51, we see that David laid claim to having the holy spirit long before the time of Christ where he pleaded in prayer, cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. The phrase one only is from the Greek word monogenes, 
which is by some commentators interpreted as the Latin word, the Latin phrase, I should say, sui generis, or of its own kind. And that may well be the case here, as the translators seem to have interpreted it. Elsewhere, we have interpreted the word monogenes in the New Testament according to a Hebrew idiom, which is manifest in the Septuagint as most loved or best beloved. The word for subtle here, leptus, may be small or even better, delicate or refined. We will run into a superlative form of this word in verse 23. The word rendered as lively is eukinatus, which is literally easily moved. The adjectives here, clear and plain, seem to indicate how wisdom should be expressed. The phrase, which cannot be leaded, is from akolutus, which is literally unhindered. And finally, the phrase, ready to do good, from Eurgeticus is beneficent. Continuing with Solomon's list of adjectives describing wisdom, kind to man, steadfast, sure or certain, free from care, having all power, overseeing all things and going through all understanding, pure and most subtle spirits. We do not understand the last clause here, or how it was translated. When I read the Greek, I see something completely different. Where it says, and going through all understanding, pure, understanding, comma, pure, comma, and most subtle, comma, spirits. That's a horrible translation. Therefore, we would read it to say, quite literally, and on account of all, making way for intellectual spirits, spotless, most refined. We should recall that wisdom was written as a poem, and therefore the verses are sometimes difficult to translate into prose, while not adding any words that the text may not have implied. Now Solomon approaches a conclusion. For wisdom is more moving than an emotion. She passes and goes through all things by reason of her pureness. And that second clause seems to say that wisdom pervades and travels through all things on account of her purity. Solomon clarifies the meaning in the next verse where he says, For she is the breath, breath, B-R-E-A-T-H, of the power of God and the pure influence flowing from the glory of the Almighty. Therefore can no defiled thing fall into her. The word for breath here is not pneuma, which is also spirit, but atmis, which is a vapor and gives us our own word, atmosphere. The word for influence is aporoia, and should have been rendered as effluence, a flowing or emanation. The phrase fall into here, from the word parempipto, may have been rendered as creep in or steal in, as if coming into something surreptitiously. Ostensibly, wisdom is in all things because God created all things. Or at least God created all of the things which he actually created. Because here Solomon mentions defiled things. Which have no part with wisdom or with God. Many commentators claim that God is in all things. In a completely material sense that he pervades every single atom or molecule in the entire universe. Yet, in his epistle to the Ephesians, 
Paul of Tarsus said only that there is one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all, and he was speaking of particular people. He wasn't speaking of everybody on the planet. Another passage taken out of context in this regard is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, where, according to the King James Version, Paul had written, who is the image of the invisible God. He had written of Christ. The firstborn of every creature, and those words are abused. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. That phrase, every creature, should be read all the creation, referring to the peculiar Adamic creation, which Paul describes with the same language in Romans chapter 8. But here in Solomon, the creation is described even more narrowly in Wisdom chapter 19 to include only the children of Israel. Yahweh God created all things, but he did not create corruptions, and he cannot be blamed or be forced to take credit for the sins of men. So we see here that there are defiled things which his wisdom does not pervade or flow into. And in Wisdom chapter 4, Solomon professed that the multiplying brood of the ungodly shall not thrive, nor take deep rooting from bastard slips, nor lay any fast foundation. Yahweh God did not create any bastard slips. Where we see Another word, which may mean to creep in or steal in, is in the epistle of Jude, in his one short epistle, which this passage for me evokes, where Jude had said, for there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation ungodly men, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. These are certainly the men against whom Solomon warns here in wisdom. Now, speaking of wisdom, he once again professes that she is from God. For she is the brightness of the everlasting light, the unspotted mirror of the power of God. That word for power is energia and should be the operation of God and the image of his goodness. So Solomon is representing this aspect of God, which is wisdom, and portraying it as a woman, not because he is attempting to create an idol, but because he can then use the anthropomorphism as a teaching device in his rhetoric. The same device was used in Proverbs. For example, in chapter 9, where he wrote, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. And that's interesting that there are later seven churches in Revelation and seven candlesticks and seven stars in the hand of God. She has killed her beasts. She has mingled her wine. She has also furnished her table. She has sent forth her maidens. She cried upon the highest places of the city. Whoso is simple, let him turn in here. As for him that wants understanding, she says to him, Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine which I have mingled. Wine in those days was mingled. It was mixed with water. The Greeks later took wisdom and made her into an idol, forgetting any intrinsic connection to God himself 
and to his commandments, without which there is no wisdom. So the Greeks, pretending to be wise, they were fools. Yahweh willing, we shall com continue our commentary on Wisdom Chapter 7 in our next presentation under the title, The Beauty of Wisdom. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.